Buongiorno, buon pomeriggio e buonasera e benvenuti a The Way It Is, il podcast ufficiale de Bobby Galinsky. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome to The Way It Is, the official Bobby Galinsky podcast. Now, can you tell I've been learning Italian? Of course you can. Of course you can. Actually, I started learning Italian about a year ago. Uh, because I love Italy, and my wife and I love to go there. And she started learning German because uh, she was born in Germany. Yes, a Jew married to a German. The irony cannot be lost. And uh, we love Europe, and we thought, well, let's learn the languages. I, I grew up learning Spanish, and um, it was very helpful in Los Angeles, getting your car valeted. But really, that's about it. So it is the 24th of April. Another week, another lockdown gone past, and uh, again, we're not going to start with the doom and gloom. We're going to get to that later on. There's always the, the bright side and everything like that. And one of the bright sides is every morning wake up, and I wake up quite early anyway. I always woke up early and uh, have a coffee in bed and start doing my Italian. It's a program called Duolingo. So if you're thinking you've got some time on your hands, and trust me, You've got some time on your hands. Uh, it's great to learn a language, you know, learn a musical instrument, learn, um, you know, target shooting or whatever, which could come in handy uh, if they don't release a couple of the rules here in Victoria. Trust me on that one. But uh, I love Italian and Duolingo is free. Yeah, it's got ads and stuff in it, but it's absolutely amazing. And um, they have like about a thousand languages on them. Of course, there's only about six that count. And... You can also actually go online and talk to other people in the language and, you know, have conversations. And uh, it's, it's quite amazing. I highly recommend it. And uh, I do find myself walking around and whether it's making a coffee or, you know, at the grocery store or wherever, start thinking things in Italian a bit and how to say them in Italian. So even though there probably won't be anyone alive in Italy by the time we get there, next year or the year after, whatever, uh, I will have a good command of the language. I did have a very good command of Spanish for many years. As I said, I learned from Mr. Pappas at Central High School. The only thing it helped me with was getting my car valeted in Los Angeles, but uh, that, that was good help. wonder where he is these days. Might have gotten deported. Who knows? I do think a lot about old teachers like that from time to time, like I mentioned in the first episode, Bradley Petons, my my English writing teacher, the most profound teacher I ever had. Um, Ms. Jacobson in third grade, some of you that grew up with me remember her. She was like a behemoth giant. She, I don't really know how tall she was, but when I was in third grade, man, she was fucking tall. And uh, one of the highlights of my primary school, I will never forget, is when Phil Kalin who was sitting in front of me, was turning around and talking to me. And Ms. Jacobson picked up this giant reference dictionary. Now, when you're small, when you're like eight years old, any big book is giant. But this was one of those Webster's giant dictionaries that was, you know, the size of the, the hood of a car, the bonnet of a car for this side of the world. And she came, you know, looming down the aisle. Now, Phil had his back to her. And she starts coming down the aisle, you know, and she's holding it up like she's going to whack him. 
And I got to admit, even back then, even back then, I had this macabre sense of, you know, what could be. I, I could have warned Phil, Phil, stop talking to me, turn around. But I just had to let it play out. I just had to let her come down the aisle and just whack him. And she hit him so hard in the back of the head, it knocked him out of his out of his desk and onto the, of the floor. I am serious as. Now, you can't do that today, which is really stupid. You should be able to punch a kid's lights out if you're a teacher. And uh, I have I have relatives that are teachers, and I explain to them the benefits of that, but they explain to me the benefits of um, workplace laws and things that have made everyone soft. And it's why kids sass back and kids have no respect for teachers or the police or food service workers or health service workers or anything like that. It all gets back to you should be able to beat children within an inch of their life if you love them, because you'll never kill them if you really love them. Um, but you will put the fear in that you will, which is the fear I had from my dad. But anyway, so Phil Kalen was completely, absolutely blindsided. And uh, <laughs> it was absolutely epic. He didn't turn around and talk in class after that, I can tell you that. And um, I haven't seen him in many, many decades, so we don't know if there's been any long-term brain injury, but I'll, I'll check in on Facebook. So uh, other teachers had Miss Niemer in the, the fifth grade. I had to take a speech therapy course from her after school. So while a lot of the other kids were, you know, playing baseball or football or doing fun things, I had to stay after school in fifth grade because I had a lisp. I had a little bit of a lisp. So I talk like this a bit. Um, it could have been anticipated as a as a um, effeminate thing. No disrespect to our many gay listeners and gay friends and gay business associates, but a lisp in fifth grade in Sioux City, Iowa, just wasn't working. So she worked on it, and uh, unless I've had a lot to drink, I usually don't slide back into that lisp much. Again, you can't even tell. No, what a nice voice. <laughs> but uh, so many things to cover this week. Actually, there's so much to cover, I actually don't know how I'm going to cover it and, and not make the show too long. There's just a, a plethora of subjects to go on to. We, we've talked about learning a language. You might want to pick up a guitar or uh, learn the piano or something like that. My wife and I have also been learning the piano together. I've always kind of futzed around on keyboards. Many of you know I grew up playing the drums and uh, then added guitars to my repertoire and became the world's greatest guitarist in 1972, for those of you that were in Boulder. But uh, I'd never learned the piano properly, so we got a piano last year, and we absolutely love it. And uh, we learn our little favorite songs and things like that. My wife likes Christmas carols a lot. She loves Christmas carols. Uh, she's a goy, which is fine, a German and a goy. And uh, it's very pleasant, the melodic tones of the piano. None of us sing, however. I, I have been told that while I have the headphones on, while I'm playing guitar or drums, I do kind of sing. But it sounds... I actually recorded it once to hear it back, the incidental sounds that I make, that are somewhere between Stevie Nicks having had a sex change and becoming Frankie Valley, or Frankie Valley having had a sex change and becoming Stevie Nicks. But uh, it's not good. 
It's not good. So I really have to avoid that. But I do love to sing in the car. If I'm driving, crank up the music, love to sing, especially after a lot of drinks. Absolutely fun. I do miss that. I do miss that drink driving that we were allowed to do. I know you're supposed to not talk about things like that, but you know what? This is an honest show. You, you get the real dope here on this show. Uh, no filters, no political correctness. I used to, you all used to, come on, you all used to in the 70s drink and drive, uh, especially at university or some of you in high school. I never had alcohol in high, in high school. That was, uh, that was just a bit untoward in the Galinsky family, you know, perhaps a glass of champagne at a bar mitzvah or a confirmation or a wedding, but no, you didn't get drunk in the Galinsky family when you were in high school. Just uh, not on, not on. So I made up for that 11 seconds after going to university, freshman year of CU, my roommate, who I have no idea what happened to him, a guy named Charlie Spears. His dad was a doctor. Never forget it. Second night of school, he brought this valise, this doctor's valise to me. Um, I was sitting on the bed there, the bed on my side of the, you know, dwarf-sized room at Willard Hall at University of Colorado. And he says, what do you feel like doing? And he opened it up, and there were just heaps of pills. And I'd never done any pill, you know, aspirin, never smoked a joint. He says, what do you feel like? I go, geez, I don't really know. I've never never done this before. I go, what would you suggest? This was 1971, September. And he goes, well... If you've never done anything, I would suggest picking your favorite color, which seemed to make sense. And I love blue. I love blue, and I like the the blanchness of white. So blue meant two and alls. And that was a great first week of school. I don't remember any of those classes. So uh, getting getting back to the drink driving, though, we love the drive, and everybody would have a few drinks and sing in the car, you know, like in in a scene from, you know, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. And singing in the car is one of the greatest freedom feelings you can have. Rolling down the windows of the car, the wind is blasting at you, or if you've got a convertible, taking the top down, blasting your favorite song, pounding a few drinks, and just singing your lungs out on a beautiful afternoon as the sun is setting. What could be better? Well, today, that's a no-no. That is a no-no. In fact, you can't do it on a motorcycle anymore without a helmet with the wind in your hair. I think there's still a few states where you can in the U.S. You can't in Australia. You can't even bicycle in Australia without a helmet. Or you will get a ticket. Trust me on that one from experience. Uh, here in the nanny state of Victoria. But um, you also had to drive drunk back then to get your car home. How else would you get your car home? I mean, it just makes sense. It just makes sense. But that was then, and this is now. And it's probably good that these laws have come in because uh, we have fewer car accidents, we have fewer catastrophes, things like that. And uh, we, like, we like it nice and safe, don't we? Don't we? But speaking of safe, the irony of it all is here in Australia, back in 1916, they adopted what was called uh, six o'clock closing in the bars. So you would have what they call the six o'clock swill. They adopted that 
basically to support the war effort, World War I. But that meant with all the bars closing at 6 p.m., and Australia being a penal colony, hard-drinking kind of place, that everybody get off work and would just drink like crazy-ass, psycho-acided-it-out lemurs until 6 o'clock. And in fact, the last big round of drinks where everyone's just mad-ass trying to get all their drinks in was called the 6 o'clock swill. Now, lo and behold, guess what happened on the roads at 6.01? Well, you had a million absolutely blind as we see him, blowing guys getting in their cars and driving home and fucking killing everybody. The road toll in Australia was like, you know, almost everybody was killed every day. It's fantastic. But most of the states rescinded that in the um, uh, late 30s and in 50s. Of course, Victoria here didn't do it till 1966, being the last state, being the most rigid conservative fascist state. I love living here, don't get me wrong, but whew, man, do you walk a line in this state? But we had more manners back then too. We had a lot more manners back then. Uh, you could go to a charity box, like for, we have Sacred Heart here and uh, St. Vinny's and, you know, the Salvation Army and things like that. And you could put clothes, you know, old clothes, nice clothes, anything very useful in and the charity boxes, and those charities would hand them out to needy people. Uh, we still love to do that, except that there's no more charity boxes here in Australia because people dumped rubbish into them and, you know, human waste and God knows whatever and set fire to them and whatever. There's, there's a sad culture here that doesn't seem to exist anywhere else of destroying things that have value and could be nice for people and 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 ruining things for for everybody uh witness the 10 billion people that came to the beaches in bondi and uh new south wales and here in st kilda in victoria which caused the premiers which are like state governors down here to close everything down and including in our state no golfing no tennis no individual fishing um, absolutely draconian, insane Gestapo tactics. Now, you can go past any takeaway coffee shop here, and there might be a dozen people, maybe 20 people, even standing around clustering a bit, but you can't play golf. And uh, that's kind of the way it is here, and it's going to get to a point where people just aren't going to take it anymore. We noticed huge in the news in the U.S., uh, those of you living over there, a lot of the uh, rebellions going on. Now, you can look at that two ways. No, might not be a good thing. And you really got to respect all the healthcare workers. And you do have to follow the laws. But, but on that same note, these are temporary laws. And everyone's kind of playing it by ear. No one really knows what they're doing. And the mental health and the physical health and the emotional health and the financial health of people uh, is as important as forever. And you wonder how many extra chromosomes some of these people have to think like that. Nothing happens unless there's an economy. Unless there's an economy with people working and people spending, people buying, people building, people making things, then you, you have nothing. You don't have a world. You've got some fictitious science fiction, psychopathic, euphoric, you know, 
fantasy land that, you know, you pick a few berries off a tree and, you know, look for rainbows and unicorns and fairy tales. And that's, that's just not, not real. So we will address that more. But the fact there's people that say, oh, we like this constriction economy, this suppression economy, and we want it to be the way it was with just birds and trees and, and no, no capitalism. You're morons. There's no way to say it. You are a moron. Now, I hope some of you, I hope a lot of you enjoyed the exercise that we did last week, the dinner party. And I hope a lot of you did close your eyes and do that exercise while you were driving and listening to the podcast over the car radio, because I really need the feedback on that one. But no, I had some fantastic feedback. I really appreciate the reviews and ratings that have pumped us up, and especially the feedback on how effective that was for many of you and how exciting it was and uh, how novel it was, and a few thinking how clinically insane the podcaster must be. And, and that's the spread that we're, we're looking for. You can accept it, you can reject it, but just don't neglect it. Now, today in history, on this day in 1955, Congress passed the law that, in God we trust, would be on all the U.S. coins and currency. Very important. But more importantly, on this day in 1977 is when I left Boulder, Colorado, to chase my dream in the bright lights of Hollywood out in Los Angeles. I drove from Boulder out to Los Angeles, beautiful road, taking the, the southern route through New Mexico and just kind of languishing, taking time, stopping. And when I got to Los Angeles, I drove straight to the beach, straight out to Santa Monica, out the 10, and the sun was setting as I got out to the Pacific Ocean. I parked the car on the beach and walked out across the sand and into the water just, just to feel the water. The sun was setting. It was like one of the most astonishing days of my life. I uh, was starting a whole new era, California, California dreaming. And 1977 was an amazing time to, to be out there. Everything was just exploding. And for a guy from Iowa who had had... Uh, a lot of experiences that you know about now at Boulder, Colorado from 71 to 77. I'd grown up pretty quickly, not emotionally, of course, still still 11. But um, being in California, I just knew was going to be transformational. And it was from, from that moment on, just being out in the surf and seeing the magic of it. And it saddens me very much to look back and see how California has evolved. So many wonderful things and so many great... Any, anything that's new is adopted in California. If it's new, California will try it first. And that, whether it's a, a, a political ideal, whether it's uh, an app, whether it's uh, a type of food delivery service, whether it's clothing, fat, whatever... California is the early adopter of all early adopters, which is fantastic. It's like being, you know, a baby with, you know, electronic toys and everything flashing at you and you go, ooh, shiny, and you're just absorbing everything. And it is no longer so much like that. It is more suppressive and less of an early adopter and more of a shamer of ideals 
ideas, practices, and thoughts that aren't so much the mainstream of many Californians. It um, has actually turned top, topsy-turvy. And you can focus on the homeless problem, which is just absolutely endemic in San Francisco and in Los Angeles. You, you wonder how any politician can tell us how to run the country when they can't even run you know, a street and the violence and the absolute mayhem that's going on. But I still have an absolute fascination with California, especially Southern California. I do love Los Angeles, warts, warts and all. A big popular skate park is being filled in and covered with sand because they don't want kids skating there because of the Wuhan virus. It absolutely shits me, and I can't put it any, any other way, that humans cannot be, A, trusted to make the decisions that are going to a, keep the world safe, but also keep our minds safe and our and our bodies right. And B, that politicians would absolutely think that through. Okay, how do we keep them out of the skate park? We're just going to cover it with a million tons of sand. If there's something we don't like, if we think that this, you know, this invisible plague virus is going to, you know, stop everything, we're gonna we're gonna stop everything, and we're gonna make sure that everything comes to an absolute standstill. And if it takes forever and the economy of the world stops forever and we save one life, well, that's a good thing. Well, everyone's entitled to an opinion. And I can tell you what I think about that one. And I'd be curious your feedback on that too. Am I really outside the curve? Am I the insane guy that's thinking that too much about the world turning and not about, you know, you know, Grandpa Pappy Munga, who's, you know, 84, who's also overweight, has cancer and diabetes, and might catch this and die. Maybe not. But conversely, I have the most respect and admiration, ad absolute abject admiration for the frontline healthcare workers and doctors. So there's there's no question the fear of the Wuhan virus overwhelming our healthcare system rather than any particular intrinsic danger other than that, any more than any other major disease. Uh, I'm just amazed that they're able to do this. They're able to just work 24-7 and do this, whether it's overblown or not, the fear, what they're going through and seeing the hospitals, especially in Italy and Spain, uh, is just astonishing. So no, I'm not living in a vacuum and not underestimating the gravity of it. I'm just coming back to what are the trade-offs. So I have the most respect to them. My industry is basically closed. The entertainment industry, every TV series, every movie, every movie festival, every rock concert, every festival, uh, um, notwithstanding entertainment being sports, every sporting event, everything, absolutely gone, absolutely gone. And people say, well, you know, Shaquille O'Neal isn't worrying. He's got money. No, he, he isn't worrying right now. But uh, we're not talking about the superstars or the rock stars or the, the top actors and actresses. We're talking about the guy that sells popcorn 
at the cinema. We're talking about the chick that sells hot dogs at the stadium. Uh, oh, by the way, I got a bit of flack about that, about calling chicks chicks. That's just something I grew up with, guys and chicks. And, you know, don't try that pronoun thing on me ever. I swear to God, don't try that pronoun thing on me ever, whether you're Sam Smith or whatever. He, he, sure, it. He, she, her, it. He, she, her, it. But, uh, um, yeah, girls are chicks, guys are guys. Doesn't matter whether you're old, old or young. And it's, it's, uh, it's just a delineation. It is not an insult, nor is it an accolade. It's just a description. Anyway, it gets down to those people at the absolute ground level that survive on this. The, the person that makes flyers for the for the concert or publicizes it on Facebook and makes you know eleven cents an hour in you know Dubai or makes $1,000 an hour in Madison Avenue. Doesn't make, doesn't make a difference. That's what's absolutely crushing me. And, you know, how it starts up again is going to be very, very difficult. Who is going to get their job back first? Who's going to be the person that chose? I'm a big fan of Seth Godin. And Seth Godin had an, has an email bulletin that comes out that I read every morning. And about every few days, there's something quite astonishing. His one this morning, I'm, I'm just going to read it verbatim because uh, I, rather than paraphrase it, it's, you know, it's called don't know, can't know. If your career depends on detection and selection, it's a helpful fiction to imagine that you're doing something more than random guessing. Whether it's a college admissions, green lighting a movie, picking stocks, publishing a book, the data makes it clear though while it is possible to be worse than average at most of these selection tasks, it's almost impossible to do consistently better than the average. As William Goldman said, nobody knows anything. It's so much more honest and efficient for a selective college to send a letter to the people who meet basic criteria and say, quote, you're good enough, but there aren't enough slots, and so we're going to pick randomly, end quote. Because the truth is that a randomly selected class of qualified people is going to be just as high achieving as any other combination they could create. So if you're the one that wasn't picked, don't sweat it. They don't know better. They can't. I love that. And that's, that's what's going to come to play when everything reopens. People that took things for granted, that, oh, I had this job before, or I was doing this, or I'd planned on doing this, or this holiday was coming next year and we are going to have international travel next year. And this, Everything is out the window right now and up for grabs. And I think we, I know I, have to be very zen about accepting a lot of things that normally I wouldn't want to accept about how my life is going to change next year. This past week's been a lot of suppressed anger on, oh, can't do this, can't do that can't play fucking tennis, but, you know, on the other side of a net from someone 77 feet away, except when we're crossing the net every other game, but people can, you know, go to the hardware store and the grocery store and queue up. That That is clinical insanity. Um, that's Victoria here in Australia, which is, uh, which is run by the Gestapo. Now, notwithstanding, they've done some good things. And notwithstanding, this is all new territory for everybody. So, you know, they 
trying to spread the net as wide as they can. And Australia's had a magnificent record of almost no deaths, nil deaths, uh, I think last night, and, and very few um, mess-ups, other than Sydney letting a cruise ship full of mutated, sick, completely dying people disembark and, and go into the community without even checking them, which is, which is classic uh, AFP and Sydney government uh, at its best. But, uh, you know, life's going to be a lot different next year for me, for my wife, for you, for everyone. But I, I do believe and I do know, I, I, I know as certain as I'm sitting here, that at the end of the darkness is always equal or greater light. And, and there will be fantastic things that come out of this. However, for the majority of people, finding Zen and balance when they have no money, no job, no business, are raising kids, looking after parents, whatever. It's going to be hard to find that Zen, Buddhist-centered philosophy that it will all be okay. And that, that's, that's a problem because not everyone has the same makeup or advantages or background or wherewithal, financial, emotional, whatever, to be able to do that. And that is what I fear the most. But I don't fear too much. And I do love that saying that everyone has fear. And the only thing to fear, no, 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 is not fear itself. I will never quote Franklin Delano Roosevelt, absolute loser, New Deal, AOC, devotee, failed president. I'm not going there. You thought I was. You, some of you, Jim Morgenstern thought I was going there. He thought, oh, he's gonna, he's gonna invoke Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Guy couldn't even dance. Anyway, but the only thing you have to about fear is paralysis because you don't have to learn to live in fear. You have to learn to dance with fear. That's all it is, is overcoming fear is just action. You got to take action. Go through it. Whatever scares you the most, just go right towards it. That's right. When I get out of this podcast, I go straight towards my wife every time. Which also brings up another very, very important ingrained knowledge and saying that I never forget. Love comes naturally, but fear is earned. Now, we've come to that brief segment that is, of course, possibly the most anticipated part of the show from some people and possibly the part of the show that people goes, what an idiot. And that's all right. It's a win either way. And that's what I'm wearing this week for the podcast. Well, we've gone total casual. We've gone absolute athleisure wear, absolute almost, you know, just discomfort and no, no flash today. A sumptuously comfortable Montclair t-shirt from the beautiful Montclair store at Chadston, where um, Nick and Boone and other people are the most immense customer service people. And you know I'm all about customer service and people that just are obsessed with their products and their creations and things like that. And uh, just a relaxing pair of Nike track pants and Nike sneakers. However, these sneakers, and you'll see the photo in the show notes, are not just any sneaker. These are free sneakers, and they're free Bauhaus sneakers, because one of the 
sneaker companies here in Melbourne, what's an international one, ran, ran a competition, and it was when Nike launched their Bauhaus sneaker last year. And in 25 words or less, why you should win the Nike Bauhaus. And they had men's or women's and age groups. And I basically said, because I'm the only person here that even knows what the Bauhaus art movement was in Germany from 1919 to 1933. There's no millennial that's going to know what Bauhaus is. They think it's, you know, where you put your dog at night or something like that. Well, anyone, anyway, miraculously, I won. And they are on now. And they are super comfortable and very unique. And I am so fast in these. And they're free, which is every Jew's, you know, lottery win. So that's um, today's fashion frenzy. Now, um, while we were talking about customer service, a couple of wonderful things that happened this week, and also things that have popped into my head that I've been really missing. It's been a very strange lead up to the new moon, and a very strange Pluto-Jupiter position, as Mystic Medusa has been reminding me every day. So if you've been having really deep dreams and really strange premonitions and zombie visits from the past, that's all. That's just all happening right now. And it's natural. You're not going schizophrenic. Well, you could be going schizophrenic. Uh, well, then you could keep subscribing to the show over and over and over again, and it'll lift my numbers. So that's cool. But uh, that's what's happening right now, and it'll clear out right about by the time you get this this podcast as we delve into the new moon. But you know, I'm all about customer service. I have to tell you a story. My wife and I were out at Chadston, which we love uh, that shopping mall just to wander around and things like that. And there was a wonderful guy at the Prada store there named Ali Shan, his counterpart. Nigel at the Prada store on Collins Street in the city, two of the most amazing professional that ever, because they know every single thing about their store and their products and the history of their company. And I'm a big fan of Prada, especially now, because they've completely retooled their factory in Italy to be making hospital gowns and, and surgery clothing, They, which is an amazing dedication, something that Burberry in the UK has also done literally overnight. That's that's what's amazing about consumerism. People say, oh, consumerism's bad. No, consumerism's fantastic because the only reason you're getting checks if you're unemployed is taxes that you paid in. It's your money that the government's giving back, whether it's the UK or the US or Australia. It's your money. They're giving back to you. They're giving back to us, whatever. And that's because there are consumers and you had a job and you were getting paid not this utopian Elysian fairyland that some people think exists or should exist. But anyway, the amazing turnaround that Western civilization and necessity being the mother of invention, that these giant, giant conglomerates can suddenly just turn around. General Motors can make ventilators. Prada and Burberry can make hospital gowns and clothing. Um, Dolce Gabbana can make uh, surgical gloves. Just that's amazing. And I do love that. I love Western ingenuity. We create things. We make things. We make things better. We fix things. That's what civilized countries do. And there are some countries that just ain't ever going to be civilized. So stop worrying about them until we 
can all look after ourselves. That's the worldview moment. But anyway, we're talking about customer service and lovely friend Ali Shan out at the Prada store at Tadston. We were just kind of out there moseying around some weeks ago before this all happened and they all shut down. And of course, those people are out of jobs. And he brought over some amazing chocolates. I said, would you like some chocolates? That's while we're moseying around the store. These chocolates were the, like crack. They were unbelievable. We just sat there mooching chocolates like Larry David on Curb Your Enthusiasm would mooch the licorice from, from the car dealership. Anyway, um, I had to find out where these chocolates came from and sought them out. And they're from a suburb in Sydney called Petersham. And they're called Bell Fleur, B-E-L-L-E-F-L-E-U-R. Anyway, we ordered some. There's a few dramas with delivery and things like that. Anyway, Cindy at Bellflor, so obsessed with making sure everything went right that completely sent out a replacement order. Didn't need to, didn't have to. The, the chocolates are so amazing. But that is the level of excellence and obsession with their product and making sure that the experience, when you're biting into that chocolate, and they're not expensive, but when you're biting into that chocolate, you're experiencing a feeling, a souvenir of a great experience that you had somewhere else. And for us, it's that souvenir of being at a great store with a great friend. And that that's what it's all about. When I used to work at Disney, it was very important that all the st stuffed toys way, way back then, especially when the Lion King came, came out and I was dealing with consumer products at that time with with uh, Disney, with our own with our own license, many of you know, the only worldwide license for consumer products, an aggregate license that Disney had ever issued. And they would actually study children in the dark with night vision glasses when they were first screening The Lion King in, in development and seeing which kids were most affected by certain scenes. And of course, when the, the father dies, when Scar kills uh, the father, Every child just freaks out because losing your father is like, you know, massive. And they knew that that doll, that stuffed animal would be huge because that is a souvenir of that experience. By taking that doll home, that stuffed animal home, that, that child was holding on to the father that has died in the movie. Now, when I was growing up, Bambi, when Bambi was killed in the forest, that was the heaviest thing. I freaked out. I freaked out. Nowadays, I visualize it being Nancy Pelosi out in the in the forest, but that's a stuffed doll, and unfortunately, I don't think we'll ever have. Anyway, that that's what is so important. It's the souvenir of the experience. And months later, years later, decades later, you you're holding that tea cup you bought there, or using that tea towel. Um, I don't really know what the fascination is with tea towels, but I'm married to someone that was born in Germany, raised in England. And loves tea towels and is very, very, very specific about what tea towels get used for what. And God help you. And by you, I mean me. If I use the wrong tea towel for my hands or the dishes or the floor or the wheels, the spokes on my Porsche or whatever, you get the picture can't use the same tea towel on the Porsche wheels as you do for wiping the dishes afterwards. <laughs> yeah. How would I know? How would anybody know? But 
that souvenir of that experience or that tea towel was purchased or you're looking at that photo, that brings you right back there. You travel in time. Last week, we talked about traveling back in time and traveling forward in time. And I do hope that all of you that listen to that, and if you haven't listened to that episode, please do, just give that one shot. Give that little exercise a shot. And if you can do it for 21 days, even for five minutes, best 20 minutes minimum. But for three weeks, I guarantee you, you'll you'll write in on social media and go, wow, that has completely changed an aspect of my life or a lot of my life. Some of the people that wrote in, um, Karl Marx, Sartre at their, at their table, um, Nelson Mandela, um, Hugo Chavez, Hitler, Jesus, Moses, um, Oprah, Marie Curie, uh, whoever. It's whoever means a lot to you, whoever thinks can answer your questions. Anyway, we won't dwell into the past there because we only have so much time and so much to cover. Things that I've been missing. Things that I've been missing. I haven't had a wanting so much as a rebelling during during this time, but missing experiences. Lunch at Bergdorf Goodman's on the park in New York. There's a waiter there that's been there for 20 years, and his name is Mike. And, you know, every time I go to New York, go in there and, and have lunch, look out over the park. Amazing. Just great food, comfort food. But this guy, Mike, tall, skinny guy, he has been there since year dot. He is absolutely the best. Missing things like that. Missing our, our morning walks. My wife and I take a walk at, at first light, usually pre-dawn, for about an hour and a half, for about six kilometers, sometimes seven, sometimes eight. Rain or shine. 100-mile-an-hour winds, hail, nuclear, black rain, whatever. We're out on, on the beach for that walk. And it's usually just completely solitaire. However, since the virus and people out of jobs or working from home and interlopers from the outer suburbs coming in thinking that they should come walk at our beach, I know that sounds elitist, but it's my beach. And now it's like night of the living fucking dead, except it's morning of the living fucking dead because there's like hundreds and hundreds of people on the beach and they're all walking back and forth. Now, that would be almost tolerable, not tolerable. In fact, I think they should have tracking devices and you can only walk in your own suburb. But that would be almost tolerable if they would walk in single file when they walk past you. We're trying to do the social distancing thing. Now, you know how I feel that I think this thing is overblown and the media has just made it into a thing to absolutely crush the economy, especially in the U.S., and unbridledly crush the economy because they believe that that will help keep Trump from being reelected. I think they care more about not having Trump reelected, the left, than they do about you and the American people. I'm 100% certain of that. They don't give a shit about saving lives. They give a shit about being in power for the next 20 years. But anyway, if everybody walks single, so that you're walking two by two, and you come up to some people heading your direction, you just have to fall behind the other person. My wife falls behind me, or I fall behind her. And it just makes the social distancing easier. But no, People, especially people that aren't from the beach and don't know the beach rules and the beach protocol, they just seem to have to take two-thirds of the footpath 
so that you have to go walk in the mud or in the sand or whatever like that. And I'm a peace-loving person, but I swear I'm going to king hit the next person that I know isn't from the suburb that's taken their half of the middle and uh, just have the first social distancing, violence-related, far-right-wing, proud-boy, socialist, white supremacist, Jewish, white privilege-related crime in Australia. I'm going to be that guy. It could happen. Oh, got that off my head. See, I feel better just just talking about that, which is why you're my therapist, so to speak. Or maybe I'm your therapist. Oh, one of the things I was missing about tennis, too, especially besides the fact that I can't play tennis, so I hate a rule put on me, is that my regular tennis partner is a wonderful, wonderful guy, Marcus Middleton. Now, we are like best friends, but boy, we are like worst enemies when we're playing each other. The, the hate is real. The hate is real. The insults and the sledging that that comes across, you know, is absolutely biblical. And he's a, he's a lovely guy. He used to be my bank manager, and then he was retrenched, um, which is an Australian word for um, laid off and given a, a big package and stuff like that uh, as they made changes. It could have been because he always paid all my bad checks and never charged me fees and lent me money off the books for years and years and got caught. But, but maybe not. Just an all-around good guy. And um, he's now in another bank, so I think I'm going to move all my accounts there and see what mayhem I can cause. But anyway, he's been my tennis partner for years and years and years. Now, he is like almost 30 years younger than me and a couple of feet shorter. So, And it's, he's just got one of those faces that's really kind of impish and lyric, and, and you just want to punch it when he wins. You just want to take the racket and just smash him, even though he's my best friend. But that's what happens when I get out in the court with him. And he is the excuse master. He he beats me more often than not. Then again, he's 30 years younger, like that, and plays lots of sport. But when he loses, it's like, oh, I hurt my hamstring. Or, oh, I've had a lot of work to do at home with the kids. He's got three kids, so he's sentenced for life. Or, oh, my wife asked me to do this, and I didn't get enough sleep. He's got a lovely wife, Steph. I know she wouldn't ask him to do too much. But he is just the ex excuse master. In fact, when, you know, Czar Daniel Andrews finally opens up the state again and allows us to play tennis, and he texts me every, every three days, oh, I can't wait till we play tennis, oh, I can't wait till we play tennis, I'm sure the second we're able to play, and I can book, he'll go, oh, I've, you know, uh, got to change the filaments of the light bulbs at the bank, and I will have to do it next week. Anyway, do you, do you have a friend like that? I think we all have a friend like that. So, talking about ham-handedly segueing, things that I've been revisiting because I've had so much time and there's just so much rubbish on TV and so much amazing good stuff, but a lot of stuff that's being foisted on us now because the studios can't release movies or they're putting them off like Top Gun and Batman and uh, The Succession. I oh, love Succession series till next year and stuff like that. We're getting, you know, Netflix and Stan and Amazon and Apple TV and everything just filled up. I'm, I'm liking the old stuff going back again from the la last two years, loving Game of Thrones again. And you know what? A lot of people say it didn't end up as well the last season. It could never, ever, 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 ever have fulfilled the imagined anticipation of every season building up to the last season. And I think they did a really great job with the last season. You re if you weren't happy, revisit it again. And if you're still not happy... 
kill yourself. Well, don't. Well, actually, hmm, if you killed yourself after listening to my podcast, more great publicity. No, I'm not supposed to say things like that. Govern yourself accordingly. Um, but just revisit it. The Affair. The Affair was one of my favorite series the past couple of years. Notwithstanding the second to the last season, the two creators went full global warming, climate change, bullshit storyline into there that, you know, took it over. But it wrapped up so amazingly neatly in a bow. And if you aren't moved to tears, and I'm a big sook, I, I cry at everything. If you aren't moved to tears, the last episode, and, you know, Noah's up on the ridge, up at the Cape, walking up there, he's old, and the Fiona Apple cover version of the Waterboy's Hole of the Moon comes up, and they fade away with that long drone shot as one of the best finales of any show I've seen like ever. I can watch that over and over and over and over. I'm a big Fiona Apple fan. The new album is epic. But The Affair, even though it wandered, hey, The Sopranos wandered, um, Game of Thrones wandered, Mad Men wandered, they all, uh, Breaking Bad wandered. Just fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. If you haven't watched that series, it is astonishing. And Dominic West, pff, role of a lifetime. What happens when you succumb to things that you know are not the best choices, but the choices that you want in the moment? What what's the cost? What's the retribution? What do you lose? And it's 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 really life in a capsule. It's brilliant. You can see the pattern of this week's show. It's kind of random thoughts, random musings and recollections and reminiscencing rather than any serious delving or serious subject matter matter and you know things like that that's just kind of that's just kind of the organic rapidity of this show and just it's as i said before and mystic medusa explained with the jupiter and pluto opposition so much benevolence and so much drama in the past pluto represents the past yes it's true and um i know you've all had strange dreams even if you're taking a lot of ambient to go to sleep. And these dreams and ghosts are real. They, they, they come to us. I remembered absolutely one of the most ghosty dreams ever in Boulder, Colorado in early 77, uh, the year that I moved out to Los Angeles. I was at 4286 Graham Court, and they called it Graham Court for a reason, with my good friend Michael Smagash, who still lives out in Colorado. And our friend Armand Kasseltu, uh, who was completely out of his mind and doing a lot of acid. And we were sitting in the living room and Jimmy Carter came on the TV. He was president back then. <laughs> one, of the, one of the worst presidents. Really one of the worst. Not a bad guy, but just one of the worst. Typical Libra. Couldn't make a decision on anything. And um, Peter picked up a crossbow as, as you would. You would always have a crossbow while you're doing lots of acid in 1977 in a house in Colorado in Table Mason, he picked up the crossbow, and we're all sitting there pretty blitzed, and he stood up and he pointed at the TV and goes, I see the 666 on Jimmy Carter's forehead. And he fired the crossbow into the television, absolutely blowing it up into a million pieces. And I hadn't thought about that in a long time. 
And I wonder whatever happened to Armand Castle II. And uh, I do know that Mike Smagosh is still out in Colorado, and a hello out there to him. And not a lot of people get those good memories. Not a lot of people. Some people think, it's, oh, we had a wonderful vacation at Lake Okoboji. And I remember when Paul slipped and broke his ankle at Arnold's Park. You know, that's their big memory. Very few people can say, oh, a friend of mine dropped acid, picked up a crossbow, and blew out the TV because he saw the Mark of the Beast on Jimmy Carter. That's a pretty hard hard one to top at a dinner party. It's like the guy that, you know, shot Obama, Osama bin Laden. You know, imagine dinner with him. What do you do? Oh, I'm an accountant, and I, uh, I handle a lot of uh, um, car dealerships. What do you do? Oh, I killed Osama bin Laden. Okay. All right. What's next? So though I don't re regret the manifestation of those stories, I do regret a lot of the things that came out of that and a lot of time and money wasted, but maybe I wouldn't have this podcast. Maybe I'd be an accountant for a car dealership. Who knows? Not that there's anything wrong with that because two of my great friends are accountants and they are absolutely wild. And uh, I do remember one other just random story this week that kept coming back to me over and over and over again. I hate milk. I cannot drink a glass of milk. But I do consume a lot of milk and things in smoothies, whey protein smoothies, in cereal, in my coffee and stuff like that. But you cannot get me to drink a glass of milk. And it all goes back to when I was 13 years old in 1966 and I was working the summers at my dad's plant, the Sioux City Foundry Company. And summers in Iowa always used to be fucking hot. It was hot all summer long. And I would have job in the factory, job in the foundry, job at plant one, uh, plant two in South Sioux City, Nebraska. If you don't know, Nebraska is on the other side of the river from Sioux City, um, and it's like the poor sister of Iowa. It's like the, the damaged state, kind of like Canada's on the other side of the U.S. And it's, it's Canadians are nice. They have to be nice. They've, they have no choice. You know, they have no gross national product or manufacturing. They do have hockey, so they have to be nice. So Nebraskans have to be nice, more or less. But they're usually not, especially if they're Cornhusker fans. I actually don't know any nice Nebraskans. I have to revisit that in the show. But anyway, I was working at the foundry um, in the summer when everybody else is playing. Do you see a pattern here? I had to go to, you know, speech therapy after fifth grade when everyone else is playing. I had to go to Hebrew school when everyone else was playing. Um, had to work at my dad's plant when everyone else was playing. Fuck. Anyway, and uh, we used to have this thing called Jolly John. Jolly John was this catering cart, this little truck that came by with amazing donuts and things and all that. And I was fat and Jewish and short. And I'm still Jewish, but I'm not fat or short anymore. But I used to love at 11 a.m. in the morning, in the summer, Monday to Friday, working there which was coffee break time. And at 5 to 11, somebody would yell, Jolly John! We'd go outside in front of the, the plant, the office, and there'd be the catering truck there, and I would get two glazed donuts. Why was I fat? Who knew? Two amazing glazed donuts. And then I'd go back into the office, and I'd take out my little carton of milk and slunk it back. Well, unbeknownst to me, lo and behold, lo and behold, unbeknownst to me, that was on a Monday. That weekend, the power had gone out. The power had gone out and had been out for many, many hours. So that Monday morning when we got there, no one knew that everything in the fridge had been quite warm over the weekend. So my milk, my little carton of milk, had been warm over the weekend. So 
being the voracious, fat little animal that I was, I got in the office, opened up my little wrap with my donuts, opened up my milk, and before casually maybe sniffing the milk to see if it was okay, why would you do that? I slugged down that milk, which was pretty much cottage cheese at that point, and it didn't even get down to the esophagus. I threw it up. It was absolute projectile vomiting and wiped out 70% of the office staff. Just... And that was the glass, last glass of milk I ever had. Summer 1966. And that just came back to me. And I'm gifting that story to you right now. You're welcome. So what I'm hoping is that in the next day or two, when you pour yourself a glass of milk and put that up to your lips, you're going to remember this story. And you'll just have that hesitation every time you have a glass of milk. Anyway, you can say those dreams and manifestations and Jupiter and Pluto oppositions are rubbish. New moons and all that's rubbish. And you could be right. And you can disagree with me on anything you like. And I can disagree with you. And remember, remember the whole theme of this show. It's okay. It's okay to disagree. But if you can't talk about things, then what's the point? And lastly, um, I was going to do some heavy investigative reporting on that family in Orange County, the Italian mafia family that is living without any visible income and driving Ferraris around. And uh, one of them could be... Um, could be in cahoots with people I know in Northern California, people very close to me. But we're saving that for another show because that is that is a, a feature, and uh, we want to explore that heavily. And I'd like to flag a couple of interviews that we're going to have coming up over the next couple months. We have acclaimed international painter Richard Payne, former nightclub owner, entrepreneur, bon vivant, Melbourne bad boy, filmmaker, and troublemaker Richard Masters, and a surprise chat with one of Hollywood's biggest, hottest actors that we'll really be looking forward to. We're just going to mix it up here on the show with the arts and industry and politics and religion and sex and morals and ethics and film and TV and musings from the 50s, 60s to the present, and just about everything. So there's something for everybody whether you like it or not. But I am going to go down memory lane as we wrap up and just uh, was looking at some old photos and just remembering any of you that really lived through the uh, 80s and 90s as sensible adults or insensible adults, some of the best places to party around the world. And uh, in Sydney, there was the Hellfire Club uh, Richard Masters Club in New York and Atlanta, the Limelight, which was owned by an amazing guy named Peter Gation and a Canadian promoter. Actually, there, see, there's a there's a, a good Canadian plus Neil Young, and uh, Los Angeles, Los Angeles. It used to be Coconut Teaser, and the Starwood in West Hollywood, and downtown near Sixth and Hill Orbit, which was this massive one of the first super rave clubs in the U.S. And in London, you couldn't miss Stringfellows. And rounding the globe back to Sydney for the cauldron. 
But you got to go to Dallas to the Stark Club, which was designed by Philippe Stark, the international French designer, for the club of all clubs anywhere ever, in my humble opinion. And looking at photos and things like that, you remember just going out and being gone for hours or days, waking up, rolling over, and being completely out of money, but remembering what a good time that you had. Which brings us to the present. So with this lovely Wuhan virus, it is like a never-ending nightclub of days, weeks, and months. And when we all wake up, after it's over, roll over and look. And all our money will be gone, just like the nightclubs. The difference is, you won't have had a good time. Except, for those of you that have listened to this podcast, a bright light in the darkness. And on that note, we're going to depart with a nice, thanks China! And remember, no matter how hard it is, it's nice to be important, but it's way more important to be nice. Arrivederci. See you next week.